Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to Marcus Meets, a show which lives at marcusbronzy.com forward slash meets. That's M-A-R-C-U-S. B-R-O-N-Z-Y dot com forward slash meets. Whatever device you're trying to listen to us with, you can listen to it via that website. So our last episode was Fat Man Scoop, one of the most notorious voices of the club. Now on to somebody who is just as interesting, but is in a different line of work. His name is Jason Kingsley, the co-founder of Rebellion Games, which... Uh, behind a, a bunch of great games most notably recently uh, will be Battlezone which is one of the brand new VR games which is is dropping for the PlayStation 4 and this whole wave of, of VR gaming is something that everyone's very excited about we're not sure how it's going to affect gaming across the world uh, so we discussed that we also discussed some other titles that they've got in the works Jason's also well into his medieval stuff and you get to hear loads more about that in this episode and also about the work they've done with the Judge Dredd franchise which is part of 2000 AD which Jason's also an owner of. So I said to him honestly Jason as someone that does so much stuff such a broad spectrum of stuff you must have pretty pretty crazy days. You think you've got a day planned and then two or three things will happen and you think when how am I supposed to deal with those? But you do, you know, you you make it. I mean, I I never really, I never really set up Rebellion to run it as a business. I set Rebellion up with my brother a long time ago now, with a view that um, we'd make computer games, and the business side of it sort of had to take care of itself. And uh, and you learn on. And I haven't got any formal qualifications in business at all. Um, I have a. a huge amount of informal qualification in business though just by doing stuff you you learn uh, and you learn best from mistakes as long as those mistakes aren't too big um, and your business can withstand them then you you learn from that um, and so yeah so today was lots of lots of meetings a few setting up of things uh, one outside meeting talking about some opportunities for licensing the comic book in the comic book side um, and then I played the latest version of one of our games which hasn't been announced yet which will probably be out next year late next year working on the gameplay mechanics of the the kind of combat the, the the gunplay coming up with some ideas and i've fed back and said i think it should be this way not that way and they've said oh yeah that will work so so i i 
what's fun for me is I'm ac actively involved in the process of making games still, which is really nice. I'm the boss, obviously, along with my brother, but uh, and some of the more junior staff are sometimes a little scared to come and talk to me, uh, which is silly, but I understand it. Um, but I'm still pleased that we actively are involved in, in all the games we make. What's it like working with your brother? Do you know what? When we were young, we, uh, we used to have um, ways of settling arguments which involved <laughs> wrestling and fighting and stuff like that throwing sweets at each other or whatever um that's pretty much how we solve problems still yeah nobody knows it but we go somewhere and we have a fight no no <laughs> as, as you as you grow up the thing, thing with the brother with having a brother is as anybody that has siblings knows they know exactly how to piss you off instantly you know they can say one word and the, the tone they say it will immediately get a reaction because you can do the same to them as well when you work with with your brother and my brother's got a, a kind of similar skill set to me but different he's much more technical programmery and as a result of that he his area of expertise is more in the code side mine is arguably more in the games design and graphics side so so sometimes our areas of expertise overlap but not always so generally speaking we have a, a policy which is if one brother thinks it's a bad idea and the other one thinks it's a good idea we probably won't do it because we don't want to piss the other brother off but if one of us is you know a bit kind of yeah okay and the other is yes then it'll get done so we sort of have a uh, a, a general rule which is if one person really doesn't want it to happen then we won't do it uh, and it's worked very well so far the great thing is we don't have any external shareholders we don't have uh, any um, uh, merchant bankers or VCs or anything like that we have a very supportive ordinary clearing bank that um, sort of just keeps hold of our money and pays bills and stuff for us but but um, uh, we don't have any investors to worry about, so it's just Chris and me at the end of the day that make decisions. So we make games we want to play. And we'll, we'll get onto one of those very soon, but what's it like being one of the last sort of real independents in the UK? I don't know. Some people say we're not independent because we're too big and successful, which is a bit of a weird way. And it kind of depends, it kind of depends what you mean by the indie game scene. I mean, uh, our first true independent game was uh, the Zombie Army, Zombie Army Trilogy, which isn't independent in that it's it's a shooter it's full of action it's great fun for players um it's a bit silly with the nazis being raised from the dead and all that kind of stuff and it's meant to be a bit tongue-in-cheek but the game takes itself seriously but obviously not really very serious but but it kind of is um that we've self-funded that we self-published it and that's truly independent and that's right at the top of um xbox um xbox indie uh thing and doing very well on all the other formats as well um but unlike many smaller indies, we have a lot of highly skilled professional artists, a lot of highly skilled professional games designers and a lot of highly skilled professional uh, coders. And so we can make a game that's kind of looks like it's really high quality. We didn't have to compromise the art. We didn't have to come up with a clever idea and not really expand it. We, 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 we made a, a big indie game. And I think in some ways uh, it's great to be a big indie. But in other ways, I don't think it's necessarily fair that we call ourselves an indie in the same way that two friends in their student flat struggling to kind of make a game could claim for bragging rights as being truly indie. So I, I'll leave that up to other people. But it is nice to be a big, successful computer games maker.
great that doesn't have to answer to anyone <laughs> <laughs> absolutely we don't we literally have nobody to answer to apart from our fans and and you know at the end of the day if a game doesn't sell or doesn't sell well enough for us to make a sequel then we'll move on or um you know we're very we try to be responsive to the fans obviously you'll everybody will know the internet is filled with lots of different opinions and those opinions range in <laughs> broad spectrum from utter lunacy to really quite clever um and and everything in between and we can all have moments of uh, internet craziness we're sitting there typing where we've had maybe a few too many beers and things like that and you kind of think oh i shouldn't have said that never mind or you write something and it it comes across wrongly when other people read it and i think it's something we've all got to learn a little bit is that we may be sitting there with a big grin on our face as we type some slightly sarcastic answer but the other person hasn't got a clue and may completely misinterpret it so we've got to learn these kind of things a little bit but the fans and our consumers and our games players are really important so we we a lot of people say don't read the comments and that's because sometimes those comments can be quite harsh but at the end of the day if somebody's giving you some feedback you may disagree with it but i think it's useful to listen to it and maybe try and take something from it that's constructive obviously there are comments that that are never going to be constructive you can't get anything from them at all but a lot of them if somebody says the game was really too hard or i didn't feel i got value for money out of this game or whatever and you think really okay well you it's, your record says you played it for 46 hours so you know and you paid ten dollars for it so you know it kind of there's a, a balance there but why i wonder why that person thinks they didn't get value for money or that person is tired of zombie games or you know and then you can kind of put that into the mix for the next game and try and respond to it you maybe don't respond individually to that person but i think it's kind of useful and i encourage encourage our games players to give us feedback and i try to encourage them to make it constructive and i try to say to them we can't necessarily make the perfect game for you as an individual because unless you've got quite a big pay pack and to pay us we can't make a game just for you um but we can make we've got to make a game for for lots of people so so i i think it's really interesting and being independent means we don't have somebody who doesn't play games telling us what they think the market wants you know we all play games you'll see as you walked around the the studio lots of board games and things like that around and so we we play we go back to the old ways you know we play old games as well old style tabletop games which are really good and help inform gameplay because at the end of the day if a game has good graphics that doesn't mean it's necessarily a good game uh, and, and i think good graphics can help a game but you know you can have a game with very ro ropey graphics and it can still be a good game uh, and as game makers we want everything we want good graphics we want great gameplay and we want you know good solid code and great distribution and great marketing and great coverage and all of that and that goes that's what we aim for but you can't always do all of it speaking about game looking to the past of gaming or board games um and using that to influence future titles battlezone is quite interesting because you know for for those that are new to the franchise what is battlezone and how long has it been around for well battlezone the the arcade machine was featured in the movie tron so a lot of people say, oh, it's a bit Tron-like. And you go, no, 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 Tron is Battlezone-like, actually. Um, and, and it comes from a time of, of huge exploration and experimentation with the arcade machines. Those are the days when people's home computers were, quite frankly, not very powerful at all. There were some great games on them, but you, know, you had to do some fairly serious stuff to get anything vaguely resembling good graphics. And the arcade machines were where custom hardware was born. And the original 
battle zone came in different forms but the one i remember playing in the cigarette smoke filled kind of uh quite grim arcade uh uh down in my local town where i went to school um had, it was a stand-up thing and it had a faceplate. you put your head against this um visor which is probably had hundreds and hundreds of sweaty boys heads yeah. against it as well but you didn't think about that at the time um and and you kind of felt like you were drawn into this uh, this world but it was a world of vector 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 tanks and vector graphics so instead of being rasters where things are made up of um, pixels uh it was it, it plotted a, a line a, a diagonal line for example at 45 degrees it would have no jagged edges at all it's just a line it's quite an interesting technology but it's a bit of a was a bit of a cul-de-sac for games technology um but it was directly writing to the phosphor of the screen and so it was really interesting really glowing uh and the corners always glowed more than the others because it had to change direction so it stayed on the corner slightly longer than the lines so you had this sort of glow effect from the actual hardware which is interesting so battle zone was one of those games and arguably battle zone was one of the first games where your viewpoint as the player was the viewpoint of the game there were lots of games before it where you're abstracted where you're looking at your spaceship or you're looking at your character uh, and those are great fun but this is the first one which were trying to immerse you in being in the game and so for my brother and i it was one of the, the key games that influenced us to get into gaming then we had the opportunity we found out atari was selling <clears throat> we found out atari was selling the uh, the intellectual property along we we bought uh, battlezone and moonbase commander uh, and that was interesting because that was we, we flew to New York, went to the tallest building I've ever been in, in in New York. I suffer a little bit from vertigo, and the uh, the all, all the walls in this incredibly high rise building were floor to ceiling glass. So I was and a lot of the people kind of leaning against the glass, going, "Oh look, you can see a thousand feet down." And I'm thinking, I'm really just going to stay here by the uh, by the elevators uh, and not look out because it's terrifying enough um went through the uh, an auction with lots of other other people uh, in the room which was really interesting uh wargaming there the guys that do um uh, world of tanks were sitting there and i was thinking oh no if they're gonna if they're gonna go for battle zone because i thought they might because it's tanks there's no way we can outbid them oh well never mind i've been in new york for a couple of days which is great lovely city um they weren't interested in battle zone which is great we won the won the bidding and and then Chris and I thought, well, what do we do with it? Because at that stage, VR, there's a few inklings of VR on the horizon, but we weren't convinced anything was going to actually be picked up. It was sort of people talking about it a bit. Uh, and then after a while, it became obvious that VR was a good place to be. Now, just to backtrack a bit, Rebellion builds all of its games on its own technology. And our technology is very 3D. And we also do stereoscopic 3D. So for... 3D tellies, we, we had versions of Sniper Elite, for example, which would work on a 3D telly. Uh, and when we got our first uh, VR headset, it was relatively straightforward for us to sort of hack something together to work uh, with the VR headset. Um, luckily, and of course, our technology team being what they do, as soon as a new piece of hardware turns up, they immediately want to start mucking about with it. So they got that up and running in, in literally a couple of days. And it was surprising how good the experience was. So that the first thing we got running on the VR headsets was a version of Sniper Elite. The problem with that is Sniper Elite is a sort of third-person action game with lots of shooting. It doesn't really lend itself to VR. 
and it occurred to me that um, Battlezone would be a much better fit. So I tasked a small team uh, to put together a demo. So we put together the very first demo uh, of Battlezone uh, as a tank game with sort of slightly stylized graphics. And it, and it grew from there. It was obvious when we first played it, people came out of the first demo with grins on their faces. And that's always a good sign. It's, it's, it doesn't, isn't what they say in a report or an email, but if they've got that smile on their face, you think, yeah, there's something, we've, we've got something there. Now we've just got to shape it and mold it and make it work. So, uh, so yeah, uh, and then uh, uh, probably a couple of years worth of work. And, uh, and that's where we, we are now where, with a finished game, which hopefully you've enjoyed. Oh yeah, I've played it. It's awesome. Um, but tell us about this iteration of Battlezone then. Well, the thing with VR is it, it's a new form of medium. So you you kind of you you have your rules. You, you sort of understand how games work, and then you try it in VR and it doesn't work anymore, uh, which is quite shocking actually for us as professionals who worked in games for over twenty years. And you go, hang on a second, we're going to have to throw the rules away here. So, for example, undulating landscapes just don't feel very nice. Um, taking the viewpoint away from the player because in VR the viewpoint has to be what you're seeing if you take the viewpoint away from the player it's a bit like having your head snatched and 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 moved into a different place and it's really uncomfortable so we had to sort of unlearn lots of things that you know for example cutscenes you can't really do cutscenes in VR very well you can't you can't leap somebody's view from one thing to another because it's not a third-person view. It's not a camera view that we're all familiar with with movies and TV. It's you. It's what you're seeing. Uh, and you don't suddenly want to be over in the kitchen or in, uh, you know, outside in the garden because how did you get there? So we had to throw a lot of that away, that storytelling me mechanisms away. Um, and we were very keen that an er as an early VR game, you'd be playing the game sitting down because you're going to be playing the game sitting down. So we wanted to wanted your body to know that it was sitting down because it is and in vr you're sitting down because you are because you're in a tank um and you we wanted to be able to one of the key things i think we've done that most people think makes tons of sense when they see it but don't recognize it when it's not there is being able to see the controller so you look down and you can see the controller and it gives you a sense of confidence and it also makes you feel like you're playing with a controller in virtual reality and it's a bit weird to describe it in words uh, and I think the key thing for VR is for people to have a go and see whether they like it uh, and that's what we're sort of in, you know take my word for it it's actually really good but don't take my word for it go and bloom well try it and see whether you like it so lots of things like that so having the controller visible um, having your viewpoint separate from where your tank is pointing means that you you have a sense of presence and you're in your vehicle because if we turned with your viewpoint as some games are doing your vehicle is turning as well and that isn't how vehicles work um i mean a lot of us in the especially in the sort of um rich countries are familiar with being in cars or driving cars and so being in a tank albeit a cyber tank um is fairly close to familiar for people so i think the the process of driving a tank for most people is quite intuitive. I mean, my mum's played VR, for goodness sake. She's, uh, sorry mum if you're listening, but she's rubbish with a controller. <laughs> Utterly rubbish. But for her, it was a really interesting experience just driving around a sort of familiar uh, landscape. Uh, and I think VR can do that. It doesn't have to be competitive necessarily. Uh, 
we played around with the idea of a tourist mode where you could switch all the enemies off and just trundle about. And quite frankly, there's a thing called the tourist industry, which involves people traveling to interesting places and, and seeing interesting things. And that can work really well in VR as well, perhaps. I mean, that's a very interesting part of, of VR, the whole tourism side of things. Like that's something we can look forward to. You mentioned being familiar with uh, environments, but you've done something very clever with this game to make sure that the environment isn't always the same, right? Yes, we have, yeah. We, we felt that we wanted to do something procedural. So what we've done is we've, we've, we've used maths to generate landscapes, um, sort of from a preset series of you know there's this kind of this the ice world and there's the fire world and stuff um but then we've populated it in different ways to make it feel different so every campaign you play um will be slightly different obviously players will get familiar with certain layouts of things but there might be a different enemy around the corner or a different gun emplacement or they might appear in different places so so that's uh, uh, been a really interesting technique and is completely appropriate for a cyber game that knows it's a game not a single person that's played Battlezone said it's unrealistic because why would you? It's a cyber tank game, so nobody's going to say it's unrealistic. And I think what's the challenges that some other people are having when they are trying to simulate the real world is that the real world is quite hard to simulate because we all know what the real world looks like. But quite frankly, nobody's going to complain that your cyber world doesn't look realistic because it's the cyber world. It's a cyber world that we've invented, so that would be a silly thing to argue. Um, but it also is realistic in the scale. We, we, we played with scale, so we tried to have what we call Titan objects in there that are so incredibly big that just looking at them and you look up and you go, whoa, blimey, that's actually a really big building. And that in itself is a fun thing to experience in VR and helps pull you into the landscape. Because with the 2D screen, there's some brilliant games, and I love playing my 2D games, and I don't want 2D games to go away at all by which I mean games on an ordinary monitor, That because I love my 3D games. See, we don't even have the language to, to kind of properly discuss VR, but a, this sort of traditional style of game that's played on a flat monitor uh, in 3D is wonderful, and I love them, and I hope they never go away. But VR does something different. It takes you kind of through the looking glass. You're the other side of the monitor in a really interesting way. And I think as games makers and games commentators, I think it must must have been a bit like this when they first started making movies. Because they kind of know they're onto something, but they don't really know what the language is. They don't really know the best way to use it yet. But it's going to be a really exciting few years as people discover new things and uncover new ways of playing things. People will make mistakes. There'll be, there'll be very expensive mistakes made, uh, I'm sure, by some people. Um, but I, I think it's really interesting i wish i could fast forward 20 years and look back at this time and you might you know, there might be people doing retrospective blogs and saying what was it like back then you know what did you think was going to happen with vr and all that kind of stuff and i, I always think that's kind of fun fun to consider what people might be thinking in 20 years they might be laughing at us going you blooming idiots that was rubbish wasn't it but i don't think so i think I think there's something really intriguing about VR now that um, is a bit different to other kind of forms of sort of potentially gimmicky technology. Uh, I think there's something quite compelling about it 
and I say that as a cynic, really, because uh, I have a I have the most rubbish phone in the world, and it but it's really quite good for making phone calls. But it's not I'm not very into my smartphones, uh, mostly because I destroy them with my I, I do a lot of horse riding, so I always destroy phones. They get smashed by stuff. Um, but I'm I'm also you know I like my technology to work, and there's something compelling about VR that's a bit different. Uh, than some of the other sort of technology breakthroughs. And how do you think that will affect the the multiplayer aspect of VR? Because that's an important part of Battlezone as well, right? Yes. Uh, I don't know whether we're the first multiplayer but uh, on VR, but um, certainly one of the first. Um, and And that's really interesting because then you bring in the social side of it and you bring in your screaming friends and and uh, a sense of being somewhere else with your friends. Uh, and we've had some, some some really fun multiplayer sessions here. And even more so than a really good uh, kind of co-op sort of ordinary shooter that we all know and love, um, VR transports you to a different place. So, yeah, the, the fact that you can see your friends and you're there with your friends in, in, a, in an even more compelling way than a really great shooter, uh, I think is, is very interesting. But it's early days. We'll see. We'll see how it works. But uh, so far, we've had some brilliant multiplayer sessions. Yeah, we've had some cracking ones today. There's some real comradeship and um, uh, a lot of expletives that have been flying out today as well. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, one one would have to, yeah, we obviously have to, one has to control the expletives <laughs> and stuff sometimes. But VR is quite, is so compelling that, especially with the teamwork required to play the game, we that's why we went for a co-op uh, gameplay because we wanted people to be playing together with their mates against the AI. We, we, we think that's more fun in a way. And, and it was also, there's also opportunities for griefing and the different weapons we've got that can combine. You know, one person can have the artillery and somebody else can call in the artillery from... Yeah. So we, we're hoping there's quite a lot of um, quite sophisticated teamwork will come out of it. So um, we'll see. But it, it does seem to be very, very good fun to play. Awesome. And what do you want us, the user, to take away from Battlezone? Do you know what? I'd like to like to get as much feedback as possible from people. Um, as one of the first waves of VR games, and, and I think we are proper, you know, there are a lot of really good demos out there that are fun and I've enjoyed them, but, you know, you might play them once or twice and you think, okay, I've done that, that's great. But the Battlezone's a proper game. We tried to make a proper game in VR. We'd like as much feedback as possible. What do people want to see us, what direction do they want to see the game go, perhaps? What kind of DLC might they be interested in? Um... Any ideas for new kinds of weapons, especially allowing for the kind of multiplayer side of it? You know, could we, we played around with the idea of one person not being armoured at all and sort of being a kind of courier and two uh, and three other people having to protect them as they go somewhere? And is that going to be fun? I don't know. We, we haven't done that in this version. Um, but, you know, what kind of game modes do people enjoy playing? Have they, can they come up with any other sort of game modes? Um, do they want combative you know head to head you know do you want to shoot your mates as well as opposed to just cooperate with them i think the answer to that is probably yes so that's one of the things we'll look into um but uh but player feedback and, and what do they enjoy the most what do they want us to to do more of uh, and what do they like the least because that's always good if people say i didn't really like this game mode and uh, if other people agree then fine we quietly drop that game mode uh, or de-emphasize it or something um what could we do with Battlezone VR two, perhaps. Oh. Oh. I don't know. Haven't even thought about it. But you know, that you know, if it's successful and everybody loves it, then we we would like to do a sequel and see see how that goes. 
Um, I'm very excited for the game and, and everyone that's played it is really, really excited. Speaking about exciting times, acquiring the 2000 AD, it was quite an ironic year for, for the yes, acquisition. It was, it was, we acquired 2000 AD. We're actually talking to you. Uh, we acquired it in 2000 AD. Uh, so we acquired 2000 AD in 2000 AD and we are on the 2000th edition today so it's kind of a bit weird uh and very exciting i uh, 2000 has been owned by lots of people um i was told recently that we'd owned it for the longest of anybody which is quite shocking and good and a lot of people say it's very good uh the the issue 2000 has has actually we've seen quite an upsurge in the number of people subscribing because it's available digitally now there was a time when it was only available as a paper product uh and i personally like paper comics but i also like digital ones as well there's a time and a place for a physical comic and there's a time and a place for digital comic uh and that's gone incredibly well for us around the world and of course our colleagues in different parts of the world like australia where traditionally the actual physical comic takes a long time to get there because it's it has to travel in a boat um uh, can now keep up to date with us and uh, on a on a daily basis so the forums are quite busy with people having opinions and arguing about characters so yeah we acquired it in the year 2000 and it's gone from strength to strength. You know. Congratulations! Thank you very much. Yes, it's um, it's exciting. We don't we don't really think of ourselves as the owners of Two Thousand Eddie. My brother and I are both keen readers. You'll see copies of the comic actually on my desk. I'm actually a little bit behind. I'm a few weeks behind. Oh. Yeah, that's because I'm currently living in a porter cabin trying to fix my house. So I've got, I'm trying to get my house done before the winter. So um, I, I've had to sort of put reading comics on hold because I need every moment to actually put the roof on. And put the windows in so uh so that's been quite exciting um but yeah there's been the the big the big uh, dna made the big movie the uh, dread 3d movie which was uh been hugely well received didn't do too well in the box office in america but it's gone on to make a ton of money uh, everywhere in the world and i think most people say it's a, it's a bit of a classic movie there which is which is which is nice yeah, it's a few of my lines in it as well. Yeah, really? I made a few comments because I was very involved in it. There's a few of the few of the lines in there that I'm, I'm a bit familiar to what I I mentioned. So that's kind of nice to know. I won't tell you where they are, but are you sure? Oh, God, I was going to ask oh, that. Yeah, the bit where okay, the bit where Anderson because Anderson doesn't wear the helmet, and of course uh, a judge's helmet is uh, is standard issue. And I said, well, why? Dread needs to say, why aren't you wearing a helmet? I'm wondering when you'd remember you left your helmet behind. And I said, well, just say something like... Sir, a helmet can interfere with my psychic abilities. And then Alex came up with a great line. I think a bullet might interfere with some more. Which is a great line. But it also explains why she, she's had special dispensation because of her psychic powers not to wear a helmet. Which is all you need sometimes in movies. Like, why did that happen? Oh, that, well, it's fine. Okay, move on. We don't need to worry about it. And if you hadn't said it, it would have been one of those things that would bug you. It's like, why, why is Anderson not wearing a helmet like everybody else? So that was kind of cool. Uh, and I, I went on set to uh, South Africa, where it was being built, uh, where things were being built. And um, you know the big sequence with the big guns, where Marmar shoots the guns across yeah. the... Yeah, well, I, yeah, absolutely epic. Really big guns, yeah. Saw those really big guns, and I saw them putting in the explosive. They were putting in all the squibs in the, in the scene where they were, going, they were going to explode in times, and there were lots of them. There were hundreds. They were taking them weeks to put in. They were drilling holes and putting the squibs in and then plastering over them, and there were hundreds of them. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of fun to see. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's probably one of the most epic 
gunfights, if you want to call it that, because it's a bit, un- bit one sided that I've ever ever seen. Like I'm pretty sure they took a lot of a uh, lot of goes at that. I mean, it's all combined as well. So so, but the the actual squibs, the explosive squibs, as I say, there were literally hundreds of them, and I, I, and I guess that took lots of people a long time to prepare. Um, and um, yeah, and, and running and timing your run, uh, the stuntman who did, I don't know whether Carl did it or not, I wasn't there when they actually filmed that bit, but sort of running away with all these explosives going off must have been pretty traumatic. But it was, it was great, wasn't it? You know, that really proper gunfire going across there. So, um, Rebellion, you do games, you've seen a Judge Dredd movie, mm-hmm. you have the rights. Yeah. Judge Dredd game maybe in the future we're looking at? Yeah, we really do want to do more. Uh, Judge Dredd stuff at the moment we've got Sniper Elite we've got Battlezone got Sniper Elite 4 coming out in February next year uh, and we've got another game that's unannounced uh, uh, and at the moment you know you, you, we're a big we're the big probably the biggest properly independent uh, games developer out there but we don't have enough people so where we go with more Judge Dredd games or even Strontium Dog or Rogue Trooper or even some of the new characters I, I haven't got a clue yet but they're all on the list of wouldn't it be great to make a game about this? We've got various lists of, you know, of, of old intellectual property we've got, new stuff, uh, classic games like Evil Genius that we, we own as well, we want to do something with. Um, as frustrating as it is for the, for the fans, we can't do everything at the same time. We'd love to, but we'd have to be a thousand people and that would be crazy. Uh, so, so, yeah, we want to do more. Uh, dread stuff i want to see more dread on the on the the big or small screen as well that's very exciting uh and we're trying really hard in the background to make these things happen but it relies on other people it relies on hollywood it relies on tv companies and that kind of stuff but you know I, i'm i'm ever hopeful these things have a habit of happening which is good i'm very excited and happy to hear that very much so um so sniper elite uh, tell us more about that what can we expect from that well, Sniper Elite is a, is a fourth in, in our sort of epic World War II spy shooter game. Um, we're set in Italy now, straight after, set uh, historically straight after events in Sniper Elite 3, which is a number one success and did very well for us. Um, we are on PC, PlayStation and Xbox. We don't have to do the older consoles anymore, uh, which is nice. So we've been able to make the landscapes much bigger. So the smallest level in Sniper Elite 4 is roughly three times the size of the biggest level in Sniper Elite 3. So there are massive sandbox levels, which is really, really exciting. Uh, we've obviously improved and, you know, um, Carl can now mantle around and uh, he can clamber around a bit more than he could before. We've had time to do that. Um, but the key thing is we've worked on the AI. So the AI is more responsive and reactive to you as a player because we've got sandbox levels uh the ai needs to be um able to cope with that as well as you the player Uh, as a consequence uh qa quality assurance our testing guys and girls are um very very busy (laughs) with testing it because the games the bigger a game is the more testing they have to do and so they've got their work cut out to um go everywhere in the game and do everything if they can and uh, we've got a lot of testers elsewhere as well helping us out so very excited about that it's a very polished game it's looking very good uh, and um, yeah I've uh, uh, got high hopes for that too it's a little bit more gory uh, Battlezone is is family friendly it's sort of abstracted uh, violence and exploding shiny things uh, Sniper Elite isn't really for kids it's it's definitely a, an 18 rated game it's all about war 
it's quite brutal and bloody although you can turn all of that off as well if you want to um and we don't shy away from the damage that a bullet could do to a person and quite frankly bullets and people don't mix wow impressive <laughs> i look forward to it and that's uh, early next year you're saying early 2017 yeah 2017 february the 14th so it's valentine's day so uh, unless you've got something better to do <laughs> which a few of us maybe have maybe haven't depends on your your current relationship status uh i think if you haven't got a significant other then you should probably be buying sniper elite 4 and if you have, send them away somewhere and get your hands on it. Say you forgot Valentine's Day. I'm sure it'll go smoothly for you and there won't be any hassle whatsoever. Awesome. Um, you mentioned uh, owning some horses, um, by the way, and, and we always like to ask the question how you like to kill some time or how you spend your, your spare time. Um, I know you're doing up the house at the moment, but um, horses, please explain. Yes. Um, for my sins, I have 12 horses that I look after myself. I live on a farm uh, and I train those horses for medieval warfare sorry what head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long catch the acclaimed movie all of us strangers starring paul mescal and andrew scott stream the new hulu original limited series we were the lucky ones with joey king and logan lerman and don't forget about Grey's anatomy every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on hulu so, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. <laughs> I, um, I'm very interested in my history. I'm very interested in medieval history, and I'm interested in trying to recover some of the old techniques that we've forgotten. Back in the day, of course, a horse was an essential component for traveling around the world, or traveling around the country anyway. Um, and was also used for fighting as a fighting platform. So um, I am very interested in uncovering, discovering or rediscovering the fighting techniques. Now to, to use the right fighting techniques, you need to have the right kind of horse and the horse needs to be trained in the right way. And um, the, the market for war horses is quite small. So I have to make my own. So I have to, I have to, I literally, I, I have uh, mares and stallions. I am breeding 
war horses again and training them in what is very similar to high school dressage so they can move sideways and backwards and spin around and do all sorts of fancy stuff um, and as we do that i work with museums and i wear suits of medieval armor properly uh, and these are proper steel suits of armor they're made in exactly the same way by hand by very skilled craftspeople uh, and um, you know by doing that it takes me away from the cyber world it's about as as un cyber as you can get i guess yeah. uh, the medieval world and horses uh, i end up cleaning up after the horses so i'm very grounded i have to clean up a lot of horse poo i have to make sure they're fed and watered and groomed and looked after you know they they bash themselves up and you have to call in the vet and that kind of stuff and it's a very um it's a very farmery very earthed kind of way of spending my time in the countryside and i, I love it it's very hard when you're wearing a suit of armor carrying a lance and riding a horse it's very difficult to think of anything else because there's so much going on when you're doing that so in a way it, it, it helps me get away from the stresses and strains of of running a successful business um and uh i work with some really interesting people in the museum sector as well i do a lot of work with the royal armories and in uh, and english heritage uh historic royal palaces i'm actually a trustee of her majesty's royal armories so i sit on the board that uh ultimately has to sort of look after uh, Her Majesty's collection of arms and armour of which there is quite a lot um, Her Majesty owns many suits of armour uh, yes, yeah, it's really good including Henry VIII's lots of Henry VIII's armour which shows him from a very sporty, strong man all the way to a, an older gentleman who's put on quite a lot of weight because probably literally eaten lots of pies mm. um, and and that's fascinating because that's a it's like a snapshot of a one human being's development over time. It's absolutely fascinating to get physically close to some of these artifacts that are world of, of world heritage status, yeah. which is wonderful. Um, but it's sufficiently different from computer games and from comics yeah. to to take me away and give me brain space. And I take my horses for rides as well in the in the landscape. I'm, I'm lucky to have fields and a, and a wood to ride around, and that's just absolutely lovely. Obviously, if it's pouring it down with rain, then you don't go out because it's muddy and horrible. But um, when the weather's really lovely, it's great to get into the countryside and, and just experience that. Definitely. And and you are extremely uh, serious about this um, because we're joined buy some actual armor is this some armor there's some armor in the room with us right now is this your own could you please talk us through what we're looking at yes this is um yeah this is this is my own set of harness it's called harness as the victorians called them suits of armor but the technical term is harness uh so as a as a soldier uh as a knight you would put your harness on uh and that is a particular type of armor that is uh, actually quite a historic modern reproduction so that's one of the earliest suits of armor made in the modern era that is a replica of what's called Gothic armor, which would have been made in uh, places like Munich and in Germany. Uh, there are, broadly speaking, three types of medieval armor. Stop me if I'm getting a little technical. Um, there are, broadly speaking, three types of 15th century medieval armor. And we're talking about the 15th century because that's when metallurgy and the skill of making plates of metal reached its peak for armor. But unfortunately for the knight, the gun had just been invented. And guns spoil armour quite badly, as you can imagine. Cannon were available on the battlefield, but hadn't really been perf perfected. They could do a lot of damage. They weren't very accurate. Um, and they stank of sulphur. And 
sulfur and hell are connected and this was uh was recognized by the church and so gunners were often excommunicated uh because of their association with hell and sulfur and all that kind of stuff but at the same time you still had knights in armor you still had men on horses in armor who were very efficient on the battlefield you could get around uh much more quickly than a foot soldier could you could strike with your lance and then get away and get another lance and strike again the speed of a horse was the essential part and the maneuverability of the horse was an essential part of it a lot of people will be familiar with knights in armor from telly programs game of thrones and from tv shows usually they're not portrayed in the way i think they actually would have been used a man on a horse that's stationary is quite vulnerable to men on the ground because let's face it if you're a foot soldier you're just going to stab upwards so a bloke who's stationary you stab the horse or you stab the man and that's not good what you need to do if you're on a horse in a knight in armor you need to use the speed of the horse and the the strength and ability of that horse to to rush in smash somebody up turn away and gallop away again and then the poor foot soldier hasn't got a chance to do anything unless he's got a crossbow or bow and arrow or something so i think that's how they were used they were used as shock troops and then turned around and went back and reloaded with a, with a new lance. So this armour is a, a type of light harness. Weighs about, probably about sort of 15 kilos, which is not too heavy. The other armour I've got is a, is, a, is a called Milanese armour, which is made in what is now Milan, was, is now Italy, but wasn't Italy at the time, because Italy is quite a modern invention. Um, and that's a heavier plate uh, and designed for cavalry to cavalry uh, attack so so one of the things that is interesting i think is that a suit of armor is specific to the task that you want to to do so if you're fighting on foot you wear lighter armor uh, and if you're fighting on horseback you wear slightly heavier armor um, and and a lot of people think armor is just armor and of course armor was very specifically rich man and it's almost all men that wore it and almost always rich uh rich man's protective equipment so a suit of armor is medieval safety equipment and whilst it looks brilliant and it's all shiny it's got to stop a rich man from being killed and uh, consequently a lot of time and energy was spent by many craftspeople trying to stop rich men dying in yeah. battle yeah. And it, it looks amazing i mean if i'm if i'm honest i'm just thinking jason Halloween must be so easy for you to pick an outfit. <laughs> well, it's Halloween. Halloween is great. Yeah, St. George's Day is obviously oh. yeah, <laughs> is obviously nice and straightforward. And I often get called in on my horse. I have a white horse called Warlord, who's one of my favourites for riding these things, and he does all sorts of stunty stuff um, as well. I get called in by various people to be St. George on St. George's Day. So I have a very busy non-computer game day once a year. But Halloween, Halloween is good as well. And talking to kids as well, it's fascinating to get kids excited about history in a way that's different from from the sort of entertainment media because i know about history from a from practical perspective of wearing armor and if i'm wearing a helmet that's exactly the same as henry the eighth war it's must be the same feeling for him so henry the eighth would have sat there he would have restricted hearing he could hear his own breath um, and some of his breath is being reflected back into his face condensation would have been forming on the inside of the armor um, he'd have been really hot and bothered and angry because you get hot and bothered and angry in armor and all of these things help us understand that a historical figure was a human being as well and can get us a little closer mm. to what it must have been like to be somebody as powerful as henry the eighth and you're closer than most of us you've mentioned a lance a couple of times you mentioned training horses to 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 run into battle. 
jousting is something that's standing out to me at the moment is this something you partake in yes yeah i've been jousting for a long time i'm i'm one of two people that started doing solid lance jousting about eight years ago we're using actual solid lances with actual metal tips it's one on the table this is a this is a historical medieval safety tip um uh, it's it's designed so yeah. it's quite ironic it's called a safety tip it's it's a a big metal spiky thing yes it's, it's got three spikes in it arranged in a sort of a triangle and the idea of that is it hits you and doesn't kill you which is what they meant by medieval safety they mean they mean it's not designed to kill you oh, it's right. designed to try to not kill you i mean i think in medieval times people were a bit more robust about health and safety or a little less robust about health and yeah. safety the idea was that you in a joust the idea is to break your lance on your opponent you can unhorse them, but that's not the objective. And a joust in the 15th century had become quite stylized. It had become um, a little abstracted from war training. It's, it is still war training, but you're not trying to kill the other bloke because that other bloke probably owns half of, I don't know, half of uh, 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 Essex or something. So if he gets killed, his family is going to be really pissed off with you. So you try not to kill him, but you need to hit him hard because you're a knight as well, and knights sort of show off by showing their prowess on the battlefield or in the joust so um nobody for a long time had actually done real jousting by which i mean real armor real horses proper competitive stuff in front of people uh four points uh and use solid wood with a metal tip on uh and nobody was sure whether you could do it with any degree of safety well you can if you've got the right equipment uh, and it can be lethal. You can still die doing it. It's a bit like an extreme sport. It's a bit like base jumping or cave diving. People will die doing it. But if you've got the right equipment and the right training, there's a fairly good chance that you won't be injured or killed doing it. So, so it it, it is, it, and it and it it does hurt. It hurts yeah. a lot. I was going to say, what's it what's it like? It must be a right adren- adrenaline rush. It's a huge adrenaline rush, and the only thing you've got time to worry about, well, the only thing I've got time to worry about is trying to hit, get my lance tip on the other bloke. Uh, and I don't think about the other lance coming towards me at all until there's a big crash and wallop, and you think, have I hit them? Have they hit me? I don't know. Because you're knocked backwards, and then you can't see anything. So you start out, you can see a very, very narrow ocularum, which is the, the, the sort of the visor, the slit of the visor. It's very narrow. It's, it's about half the width of your little finger to see through uh, and you can see your opponent you can see where you've got to go you've got to go in a straight line and lower the lance so that's quite difficult to do and it's about timing and angle and anybody that plays sports knows that you know the more you try sometimes the worse it gets you know if you're trying to kick a ball really hard and you're just like oh, that didn't work at all I spooned that completely but sometimes if you're really in the zone sport can be actually easy and kind of a bit sort of zen like and it just goes really well jousting is exactly like that when you try you fail but if you let your body take over and let your training take over, you'll, it'll work really well. But when you get hit, physics takes over. And you're often knocked backwards. Your head is often knocked backwards. And all you can see is sky. You don't even know where the horse is going. You hope the horse is going in a straight line. Uh, and then you've got to pull yourself forward and you've got to slow down and stop at the end of the what we call the tilt yard, which is the, the end of the rail that separates the two horses. So... Um, Yes, it's a very interesting experience, and I'm really proud to have, have been a pioneer in that area. I don't do solid lance jousting anymore. I haven't done for a while because um, I've just got too much on. Um, but there's a lot of my colleagues doing it, and there's some been really interesting stuff on telly recently. It's nice to see these things happening. But I have to reiterate, it is dangerous. People did die back then doing it, and 
people are getting injured doing it now luckily nobody's nobody's died recently from 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 jousting yeah touch wood but uh but i'm expecting as more people do it mm. i'm expecting more injuries simply because it is intrinsically dangerous hitting somebody with a metal tipped piece of wood at a combined speed of 50 miles an hour is going to cause injury yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just the way it is um the only i can compare it to imagine imagine playing a playing a game with somebody where uh you take turns in punching each other in the face <laughs> and you yeah <laughs> and you're not allowed to duck you're not allowed to move yeah. and, you, and it's yeah. just you can't there's no defense there's no defense in jousting um and so basically you've just got to take it and that's part of the knightly training i think it's part of the warrior training that you can deal out damage but also as a soldier as a warrior as a fighter uh, you've also got to be able to receive the impact as well and anybody that does martial arts or boxing knows that a lot of the training is about you taking the damage as well yeah. uh, and you know the cage fighters and M mma people some incredible sports people do that um but one of the things that's in common with jousting is that you're gonna get hit yeah uh, are there any other parts of nightly training and lifestyle that you like to take into 2016 and onwards? Um, yeah, well, I try to run my business a bit, like the following the nightly codes. So There's Justin in, in the workplace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, you'll see I've got weapons. Yeah, okay. I've got weapons. And I sometimes, no, I never use weapons to negotiate. <laughs> no, that would be wrong. Um, no, but in terms of the, the basic principles of try to be good, you know, don't be a soft touch, but try to try to be a decent person in business. Try to do uh try to be fair uh and if people you know try to, try to protect people that can't protect themselves you know, help colleagues if they you know if they're having difficulties try and help them and do that kind of stuff and and uh you know a lot of it is is really applicable to just being a decent person uh and a nice person and uh that's really what the nightly code is all about it's actually just try to mo try to be decent to people and if you can't be decent and if you have to fight fight well and ever consider changing your surname to Knightley, maybe? Because you're so close to Kingsley there. It's close. It's close. I've got an OBE, so I'm kind of somewhere on the way towards getting a knighthood. But um, uh, I, I'm very proud of that. Uh, but uh, I don't, I, Kingsley, there was a Sir Kingsley back in the, back in the day. Yeah, there's a Kingsley, um, there's a place in Yorkshire, which is a, is a village called Kingsley. And there's a, there's, a, there's a house there, a big substantial house called Kingsley House. So, you know, I've always thought one day, I, I love Yorkshire as well, but my work down in Oxford. Um, but, you know, you could imagine Jason Kingsley of Kingsley Hall, Kingsley would probably be a little over the top and a bit confusing. Well, not confusing for the postman, yeah. but it could, could be quite fun. But yeah, all of our, all of our surnames, our knightly names, which is what the, 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 our, our surnames are all about, uh, mean we're probably, you know, we're probably all descended from knights back in the day if we, if we dig in deeply enough. Awesome. Oh, thank you very much. That was a real good chat, man. Uh, computer gaming and jousting at the same time. It confuses people awfully when I when they kind of learn that I do computer games, and then two thousand. I've got friends that only know me from jousting. I've got friends that only know me from comics. I've got friends that only know me from computer games. And sometimes when I tell them that I do these other things, they kind of look at me like I'm some kind of lunatic. But it's, it's fun. It's fun. I like it. I like I like to keep busy in life, and I like to do interesting things, and uh, that's what it's all about. And that, my dear friend, is how you live life. Have fun. Thank you very much for that, Jason Kingsley. Uh, that was Marcus Meets. I've been Marcus Bronzy. Jason Kingsley, this episode. 
a man that does oh so much. It's crazy, like jousting one day, creating lines that make it into films that are great another day, and on the other day, creating computer games. Absolutely amazing. This has been Marcus Meets, anyway. Um, I'd like to say thank you to all those involved in the show. Co-producers Billy Wright, Shane Powell, Milo Fisher, David Shawcross. Special thank you to Wide Awake, a.k.a. CJ Beats, and Jordan Crisp for the introduction and outro music. We'd love your feedback in the form of a rating and review. In fact, we've made it so simple. Just click on a link that's in the show description and you can help to support Marcus Meets and get it to other ears. Speaking of that, do you know what else I'd like you to do if you don't mind? I mean, you don't have to if you don't want to. Take the time and tell one friend about the show. If you like it or an episode that you like, share it with them and, and uh, encourage them. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Have a listen. If you do that, it will be greatly appreciated. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and I'll be in your ears soon. Bye.